So we're going to continue forward in uh, the series that Pastor Paul has been doing for the last several weeks, uh, Foundation. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in Genesis 3 again. And we're talking about, you know, I mean, all the things we've been talking about. If you've missed any of the sermons, please go back and listen to them. Um, they've been fantastic in terms of really getting us grounded in our faith and understanding the foundations of our faith as Christians. And so today, we're going to be talking about another foundational aspect of the Christian faith, and that is promise. Promise. This is a word we hear a lot and talk a lot about a lot in Scripture. Another word we might use is covenant, okay? And the concept of promise is truly foundational to the rest of Scripture and our understanding of God and His people and His plan of redemption. And so speaking of promises, I want to make you a promise today. That by the end of our time together, you're going to be more confident and have more hope in the promises of God than ever before. Why? Because we're going to see that He is a promise-making, and not only that, but a promise-keeping God. And believe it or not, we see these qualities of God in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So we're just going to read verses 14 and 15, and that's going to be where we're at today. So uh, read with me, follow along. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So last week we saw the larger story in which this is found, uh, where Adam and Eve have now given into the temptation to eat of the fruit. And then God begins to question Adam and Eve, and they all start playing the blame game. And then it comes to the judgments. And Pastor Paul talked about uh, the judgments that God gave for the woman and the man and the earth and creation, and then finally their banishment from the garden. But God did provide for them. He provided garments for them to cover their sin, to cover their shame, instead of the fig leaves that they try to provide for themselves. And so, in that larger context, we see these verses, and in here, the Lord God, he makes three promises to the serpent. First, there's the promise of humiliation. Second, the promise of enmity. And third, the promise of defeat. Humiliation, enmity, defeat. Those are the three promises that we're going to look at today. Now, Notice that when the Lord approaches Adam and Eve, he questions them. So we saw that he, he, he comes and you know, he says, where are you to Adam? And have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And he gives them a chance to confess and repent. But when it comes to the serpent, no such chance is given. Immediately, the Lord begins to pronounce an oracle or what we know a prediction of judgment upon the serpent. And these verses where God addresses the serpent are actually the central point of this entire narrative. And the author uses a literary device known as a chiasm to draw our attention uh, to it. So uh, we have a diagram here that I just to help you kind of keep in your mind uh, what we're talking about. But the order in which God addresses the characters uh, draws our attention to the judgments made against serpents. So first, God questions the man. 
then the woman, and then pronounces judgment on the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. So it goes man, woman, serpent, woman, man. And right at the middle, we have this judgment against the serpent. And this stylistic device points us to the main point of this entire narrative of Genesis 3, the judgment of the serpent. And so let's take an example from today of how we might try to draw people's attention to uh, a main point that we're trying to get across. One I think of right about is advertising, okay? So as you came into the church today, you may have seen the sign uh, out front announcing the community soccer night. Now on that sign, how did we draw your attention to the main point we wanted you to get? Larger font, right? Larger font. The thing in biggest font is community soccer night. Now, there's other information on that sign that's important, right? Like the date, November 5th, the time, 4 to 7, that there's going to be food for the families at 5.30, soccer for kindergarten through 5th grade, and, and so on. And all of that smaller information is important. And at the same time, the main point is we are having a community soccer night, okay? So we're drawing your attention to that point. And I wanted to use that as an illustration to see that the author here is trying to draw us into the main point that this judgment that God is levying against the serpent is what the main point of this whole story is about. So the first thing that the Lord says to the serpent is, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. Now, this is ironic because in Genesis 3.1, the serpent is described as crafty above all the beasts of the field, and now here is cursed above all beasts of the field. Now, the question is, what is a curse? You know, when we think curse, we probably think curse words or words that we shouldn't say, all right? We can't truly understand what the concept of curse means in the Bible until we understand the concept of blessing. And in Scripture, blessing has to do with abundance, fruitfulness, and life. Abundance, fruitfulness, and life. And the first blessing given in Scripture is actually Genesis 1.22, to the fish and to the birds to be fruitful and multiply, which also applies, or which also applies to the animals. And then humans are given the same blessing to multiply and fill the earth. So if blessing has to do with fruitfulness, with abundance in life, then a curse implies fruitlessness, scarcity, and death. The two are contrasted to one another. And we actually see this in what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. When God is making his covenant or his promise with Abraham, at the very end he says, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. So this idea of curse can also be understood as removal from the place of blessing. Because we saw that God doesn't call a curse down upon Adam and Eve directly, but they do experience the effects of the curse. Banishment from the garden. Removal from the place of blessing. And actually in the next story here in Genesis... After Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord said to Cain, You are now cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. And so Cain was put under a curse, and the ground would no longer yield its blessing to him. But now that we know what a curse is, what is the specific curse that God declares over the serpent? It's this. On your belly you shall go. In dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, whether the serpent already uh, was crawling on its belly and that existence would be even more miserable than it was before, or whether the serpent had legs and now would no longer, the point is that this will be complete and utter humiliation. This is the promise of humiliation. And elsewhere in Scripture, we see the imagery of one falling on their belly as an act of self-humiliation before a leader or before a king, and eating dust as one of abject defeat and humiliation. And Micah 7 illustrates both points. When God's discussing uh, the victory or his victory over the nations, it says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like the crawling things of the earth, like a serpent. They shall come trembling out of their stronghold. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So this is the promise of humiliation that God makes with the serpent. So verse 14 contains the judgment that comes against the physical serpent. But then in verse 15, we see the judgment that comes against the spiritual serpent, behind the physical serpent, controlling the physical serpent. And this leads us to the promise of enmity in verse 15. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, I always like to know when we use words what we mean by the words we use. Enmity. What is enmity? That's probably not a word that we use every day, or ever for that matter, uh, except when we're talking about this verse or these verses right here. Enmity. What is it? Well, here's a couple definitions. Enmity is being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Enmity is being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Another one might be positive, active, and typically mutual hatred or ill will. So this word enmity isn't just a passive indifference or dislike, but this is an active, willful hostility and hatred between someone. And this makes sense because this is we get this word from the same root word that we get enemy. Enemy, enmity, same concept. And this Hebrew word, which is eva, for anyone who wants to know, eva, only occurs five times in the Old Testament. Once here, twice in Numbers, and twice in Ezekiel. And I think the uses in Ezekiel are very helpful in helping us understand this word enmity. When the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, what exactly that means. So in Ezekiel, in both times it's used, it's being used when the Lord is pronouncing judgment against enemies 
of Israel, specifically the Philistines and the Edomites. Now, we see throughout the story of Scripture these two peoples over and over again coming up against the people of God, implying these people coming against God himself. And it's, they're both described as having ancient or never-ending enmity with the people of Israel. The Philistines and Edomites have this active, willful opposition and hatred towards the people of God. And so this is what we mean by enmity. Now, when I think about enmity, I also typically think about sports rivalries. Now, I know not everyone's interested in sports, but track with me on this. Uh, Growing up, I literally, I'm not exaggerating, I literally worshipped the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburghers, that's what we go by, um, very, very intense followers of the Pittsburgh Steelers, I guess I'll say. Uh, and, and here's what I mean. When I got my own bedroom, it was a Steelers bedroom, painted black and gold, massive logo on the wall, pictures of players, blankets, Steelers, pillowcases, Steelers, lamp, Steelers, even the light switch cover on the wall was a Steelers light switch cover. And this is even the most extreme part, that every Sunday after church, through a Steelers game, go home, put on my extra large Ben Roethlisberger jersey that looked like a dress on me, then put on my Steelers sweatpants, and then Steelers necklaces, and then a crazy Steelers hat, and I probably had some bracelets, and then I took the terrible towel and tucked it in my pocket. The thing that you wave on, what we know is a rally towel, which, by the way, that originated with the Pittsburgh Steelers and all their sports and teams stole it from us. So, just for the record. (laughs) But, this seems funny, but this is straight up idolatry. My room was a literal shrine and place of worship to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, there was one person and team in particular that I had enmity towards and some of you know Tom Brady and the New England Patriots some of the yeah put that fist down back there some of the earliest memories of my life are them knocking us out of the AFC playoffs multiple years some might call that traumatic memory but I literally had hatred towards it and and to show that this was true worship in my life that Whether or not the Steelers won or lost affected me emotionally the rest of that day and even sometimes into the week, especially if it was a playoff game, losing to the Patriots again. So why do I bring all this up? Well, this was this shows us this this clash, this opposition, this wolf. And this might seem funny, but there are serious rivalries in sports. Um, UNC and Duke might be another one. There is some active and willful uh, opposition between fans of those two teams at times. Or maybe uh, North Davidson and Oak Grove. That Oak Grove, they took all... Never mind, I won't go there. That's just a friendly rivalry, right? But what about in families? Maybe in those sibling rivalries, there's some enmity. 
We live in a small town, and I know some of y'all have been around for a while. Who is that person that you've known your whole life that you've built up anger, resentment, and enmity towards over all these years? Now, now you're getting a picture of what we mean by enmity. So the next point is one of those things that I've somehow overlooked all the countless times I've read this passage. The Lord doesn't just say that there will be enmity between you and the woman. He's the one who puts it there. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Here we have the promise of enmity, but why? Why does God put enmity between the serpent and the woman and their offspring? And this quote from world-renowned Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, I think, explains why. And it says this, In the narrative, the woman, left on her own, gives her affection, her allegiance, and her friendship to the serpent. By placing enmity between her and the serpent, God utilizes his sovereign right to alter her religious affections and allegiance. The hostility toward the serpent entails her reorientation toward God with a love for him and a desire for his intimacy. So this was actually an incredible act of God's grace. That if there was not enmity sovereignly put there by God between the woman and the serpent, there would have been no possibility of her action or her affections being turned back to God. And this has huge implications and application for us that I don't want to miss. I don't want us to miss. And it's this. God is not the enemy. The serpent is. God is not the enemy. The serpent is. And if you think that God is your enemy, then you've been deceived by the real enemy. That there was not enmity put between us and God. He didn't put it between us and him but us in the serpent. We are the ones that committed treason against God and made ourselves enemies of him. Romans 5 says that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by his son's death. So your enemy is the serpent. It's not God. And here we have God kind of drawing the battle lines between his kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, outlining the struggle between good and evil. And we see these things play out on a cosmic scale, but also on a personal level. It's easy to talk about it out there in the world, but what about in here? Everyone, whether Christian or non-Christian, knows the battle in your soul between good and evil. To be selfish or selfish or selfless. To gossip about your coworker or classmate or speak highly of them or hold your tongue. To be faithful to your spouse or to betray them. To worship God or to worship anything other than Him. We all know this, this battle deep within our souls. 
Although we see it out there, we know it's just as real here. In the next phrase, it's interesting that the offspring is referred to as the woman's. Offspring or the seed of the woman. Now, the reason this is interesting is because typically descent was traced through the father or through the male. Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. So it's interesting that we have this terminology of the offspring or the seed of the woman. And it really is hard to know just from this text what or who the seed of the woman is and who the serpent is because, or who the seed of the serpent is because Cain came from Eve and was her seed, but in some way represented the continuing evil of the serpent. Well, John 8 may give some clarification. When some Jews were claiming to be Abraham's offspring based purely on ethnic descent, Jesus says this to them because they were rejecting his teaching. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he, he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So by the New Testament, it seems that the seed of the serpent are those who reject Jesus and his teaching. And God kept his promise to establish ongoing enmity between the woman and the serpent and their offspring. And though it was ongoing, there would be an end to it. There would be ongoing enmity, but it would not be forever. And this brings us to the third promise that God gave to the serpent, the promise of defeat. Verse 15 reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've said this before, but this is known as the the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel the first announcement of good news that this would not go on forever that evil would be stopped in its tracks though there would be an exchange of blows between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring the same Hebrew word is used for both. He shall bruise your, or bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. But the woman's offspring would deliver a fatal blow to the serpent's offspring. Defeat is inevitable. Defeat is certain. And This verse truly is the first proclamation of the gospel. Watch this. We have a picture here that I want to show you. This was discovered in an archaeological dig in 1968, and it's dated to the first century. 
And it was found in a stone box containing the remains of a young Jewish man named Yehohanan. He died by Roman crucifixion. This is a picture of his heel bone with an iron nail still in it. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, there's this beautiful exchange where Jesus tells his mother Mary that John, the beloved disciple, is to be her son, and, that, and to John that Mary is to be his mother. But when Jesus addresses Mary, he doesn't address her as mother, but woman. He wasn't being disrespectful. With his heels nailed to the cross, Jesus, the seed of Mary, addresses her as woman. He is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent and would have his heel struck in the process. But that's not all. Adam's judgment was that from the ground he would only reap food to eat by the sweat of his brow. Jesus' sweat fell from his brow to the ground like drops of blood in the garden as he prayed to the Father in anguish. Adam would face thorns as he worked the ground. Jesus had thorns go into his face as the soldiers placed a crown of thorns upon his head and then hit him over the head with the stick. God provided clothes to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, sin and shame, while God and Jesus was stripped naked and became sin and shame for each of us. Adam and Eve took from a tree that they might taste its fruit. Jesus was nailed to a tree that he might taste death for everyone. And maybe most shockingly of all, Adam and Eve weren't directly cursed by God, but the serpent was. Yet in Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ himself was cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The serpent landed a significant blow. But the very thing the serpent used to bring about victory was the very thing God used to fulfill his promise to the serpent that he would be defeated. The crushing of the serpent's head is best summarized with these words. He is not here. He is risen. About which Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their, their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of, the, of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then in 1 John 3 it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Though the serpent has already been defeated, he's not yet been completely subdued. Revelation 12, 17, the dragon became furious with the woman 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This already not yet tension is seen throughout Scripture with many of the promises of God. And there are some incredibly rich takeaways from these truths. That when God makes a promise, he will keep it. When God makes a promise, he will keep it. And so when you come across the promises of God in Scripture, you can know that the Lord is going to be faithful to keep that promise. So take heart, whatever evil, whatever darkness, whatever trial you're facing, there is always hope. And remember, God is not your enemy. The serpent is. And we can take heart knowing that one day, Jesus will return grab that serpent by the throat and cast him into the lake of fire forever so that there will be no evil left. It will be the final blow to evil. The serpent has been given the promise of humiliation, the promise of enmity, and the promise of defeat. And those promises are sure and they are true.